There have been many references to the so-called bearded lady throughout history. You may have heard of Annie Jones, who was P.T. Barnum's bearded lady featured in the film The Greatest Showman, and more recently, to an Instagram influencer and activist, Harnam Kaur, who has hirsutism associated with polycystic ovarian syndrome, and decided to embrace her facial hair growth since the age of 16. Hirsutism, or male pattern hair growth, is one of the many skin manifestations that can be associated with endocrine disorders such as polycystic ovarian syndrome. As we have come to learn more about these conditions and their cutaneous manifestations over the years, treatment options have vastly improved. Offering patients the autonomy to choose whether they prefer to showcase these features of their condition to, or to pursue a spectrum of treatment modalities from topical to procedural to systemic. Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Dr. Sarah Adamson, and I am a research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. And my name is Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, medical educator, and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Today, we're going to explore the cutaneous manifestations of common endocrine disorders, including polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, diabetes, and thyroid disorders. We'll be covering how do these conditions manifest, and in particular, how do they manifest themselves on the skin? How common are they? Why do they develop? And how are they treated? Joining us today is Dr. Rosie Worsley, an endocrinologist specializing in women's hormones and health at Epworth Private Hospitals in Melbourne, Australia. Her expertise includes premenstrual syndrome and premenstrual dysphoric disorder, polycystic ovarian syndrome, osteoporosis, thyroid disorders, and diabetes. Her research has received awards from the Australasian Menopause Society, International Menopause Society, European Menopause Society, and the Endocrine Society of Australia. Also joining us is Associate Professor Alvin Chong, a specialist dermatologist at the Skin Health Institute and St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. He's also the head of the Transplant Dermatology Clinic at the Skin Health Institute and adjunct associate professor at the University of Melbourne. We might start with a common endocrine condition that affects many Australian women, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS. What is PCOS and how common is it? PCOS is the most common endocrine disorder in women of reproductive age, affecting about 10% of women in this age group. As we know, a syndrome is a collection of symptoms that often occur together, but which the underlying cause is not definitively known. PCOS is a syndrome characterised by both rep reproductive and metabolic features. It's important to know that it is a syndrome affecting the whole body, not just the ovaries. That sounds very broad and potentially difficult to identify. How is it diagnosed? It is a diagnosis of exclusion and can be made when two out of three criteria are met. These are irregular cycles or oligoanovulation, biochemical or clinical hyperandrogenism, and the characteristic appearance of PCO on ultrasound. Although this sounds simple, it can actually be very challenging in clinical practice. I think it's time for our first skin tip. Polycystic ovarian syndrome is a diagnosis of exclusion and can be diagnosed when two out of three criteria are met. These criteria are irregular cycles or oligoanovulation, biochemical or clinical hyperandrogenism, 
and the characteristic appearance of polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. Now, Rosie, women often get very anxious about what is an irregular cycle and what isn't. How do we define an irregular menstrual cycle? We define irregular cycles as those that are either less than 21 days or more than 35. And that's because we know these cycles are very unlikely to be associated with ovulation. Can you tell us more about how PCOS manifests clinically? One of the major challenges of PCOS is that it's a very heterogeneous condition. Each woman is different and the symptoms can vary widely. Various investigators have tried to group women according to their phenotype, but this remains an ongoing area of research. You mentioned it has both menstrual and metabolic features. What are the menstrual symptoms? Reproductive symptoms include irregular cycles, but they can also be absent or even present as primary amenorrhea. Fertility problems are also very common, but it's important to note that in Australia, women with PCOS generally have the same number of babies as women without PCOS. That will definitely be reassuring for any listeners who have PCOS to hear, as I'm sure it'd be one of their greatest concerns if they get this diagnosis. Absolutely. And many women are under the misconception that they can't have children. What metabolic symptoms should we be alert for? The metabolic manifestations of PCOS include weight gain and difficulty losing weight and a propensity to hypertension, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes and gestational diabetes. Elvin, what cutaneous manifestations should we expect to find? Well, there are many cutaneous manifestations, but the commonest is hirsutism, followed by acne. There are less common manifestations such as acanthosis and agricans, androgenetic alopecia, and even skin tags. It is really quite a spectrum, and patients can often get no skin manifestations at all, or others get many of them. I often refer to dermatologists very frequently because skin problems are very common and often very distressing. So we've identified these features you've mentioned. What is the initial workup you'd advise for us in investigating for suspected polycystic ovarian syndrome? The diagnosis can often be made clinically with select use of investigations to rule out rarer causes. For example, for most women with irregular periods and long-standing hyperandrogenism, 99 out of 100 times PCOS is going to be the cause. Because PCOS is a diagnosis of exclusion, and as there is no one test that can tell you that the woman in front of you definitely does or doesn't have PCOS, careful history taking and examination are really important. Are there any tests that would help to support the diagnosis, even if it won't give a definitive answer? Certainly. It's often very useful to check a total testosterone and an SHBG level, Depending on the lab, you might see the reading reported in terms of calculated free testosterone, free androgen index, or bioavailable testosterone. I think that's really fascinating because in general practice, I see so many women come and see me and they say that they can't have PCOS because on their blood test, they've had normal testosterone levels. So that's definitely something that I can take away from this today. Are there any other investigations we should consider? Other investigations will depend on the symptoms. For example, if one of the symptoms is irregular cycles, then it would be important to check um, thyroid-stimulating hormone and prolactin levels. A morning blood sample taken in the follicular phase to measure 17-hydroxyprogesterone is used to exclude non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia with a level of less than 6 nanomoles per litre being considered normal. What is the role of ultrasound in the diagnosis of PCOS? Does it have to be positive to make the diagnosis? Ultrasound is not a requirement for the diagnosis of PCOS, and it is now actually recommended that ultrasound is not done until it has been at least eight years since a woman's first period. 
The reason for this is that we now know that a polycystic-like appearance is very common in adolescents. In women who are at least eight years after Menarche, ultrasound can be useful, but it is not mandatory. The term polycystic is actually a misnomer as what is actually being assessed is the number of follicles in each ovary. The number of follicles required for the diagnosis has been increasing as ultrasound technology has improved. So we do not need an ultrasound until at least eight years from menarche, but are there any other features that would indicate we do not need an ultrasound? If a woman has irregular cycles and hyperandrogenism, then an ultrasound is not required to make the diagnosis. That's a great point for us to remember when assessing these patients. Rosie, do we know what causes PCOS? We know that there is a strong genetic basis to PCOS with multiple genetic loci associated with PCOS and many different phenotypes of PCOS. It's likely to be a polygenic disorder. We've discussed the features of metabolic syndrome in PCOS. How does this relate to the etiology? We know that one of the core features of PCOS is insulin resistance. We know from research studies that even lean women with PCOS have insulin resistance. Women with insulin resistance need to produce more insulin to regulate their blood glucose levels. The effects of high insulin levels include weight gain and increased testosterone production from the ovaries. High testosterone levels also seem to worsen insulin resistance, as will a high body mass index. And what roles do androgens have in its etiology? Androgen pathways are also altered in PCOS. As well as higher testosterone, women with PCOS also often have elevated DHEAS and androstenedione levels. There is also some evidence that women with PCOS have increased production of alternate androgens that we do not measure in clinical practice, which may explain why some women have marked symptoms of hyperandrogenism without particularly high testosterone levels. As a GP, I see many patients with PCOS. What treatment options are available for us to offer these patients? The treatment of PCOS depends on the symptoms and priorities for the patient. None of our current treatments are disease-modifying as such. The usual lifestyle modifications are very important as part of treatment. For irregular cycles, the oral contraceptive pill is commonly used. The oral contraceptive pill has the advantage of providing endometrial protection that is, preventing endometrial hyperplasia and improving androgenic symptoms. The OCP reduces testosterone levels by about 30 to 50%, in part by turning off ovarian androgen production and also by increasing the production of SHBG. This is a protein made in the liver which binds testosterone. And of course, it also provides contraception. It's not uncommon for my patients to be hesitant to start the pill due to reluctance for exogenous hormones. Are there any other treatment options, especially non-hormonal? That's right. The pill has many side effects and many women do not want to take it, which is usually when they get referred to me. For women who do not want to take the pill, if they have at least four periods a year, then they do not require medical treatment for their periods if they do not wish to. If they have less than four periods per year, then they are at elevated risk of endometrial hyperplasia, and hence we would recommend using an alternative to the OCP, such as the progestin-only pill, a progestin-secreting IUD, or a course of oral progestin for 10 days every quarter. For hyperandrogenism, usually the pill would be commenced, and then if insufficient benefit, spironolactone up to 200 milligrams per day would be added. How would you commence a patient on spironolactone? I usually start with 50 milligrams a day for the first week, then increase to 100 milligrams. This is a high enough dose for most. 
Is there anything we'd need to watch out for when prescribing it? Spinolactone is usually used with the contraceptive pill as it is teratogenic, at least for boy babies. However, I do prescribe it for women who are not on medical contraception so long as they are aware of the risk. For women over 40, it is important to check their electrolytes as spironolactone can cause hyperkalemia. Are there any alternatives to spironolactone? Other antiandrogens include cyproterone acetate, although this can cause weight gain and low mood, and 5-alpha reductase blockers like finasteride. I've often given my patients with metabolic symptoms metformin. How beneficial do you find this in managing PCOS? Metformin is commonly used in PCOS. It reduces insulin levels by about 25% and will result in a small amount of weight loss in some women. It can restore ovulation and it can be useful for women with irregular cycles who want to try to have a regular cycle but don't want the pill. Metformin may improve ovulatory function through a direct effect on the ovary. However, it's important to know that metformin is no longer used as part of fertility treatment as it does not actually increase the take-home baby rate. Are there any additional treatment options for women who are obese? For obese women, I offer pharmacological weight loss therapy, especially the GLP-1 agonists. Weight loss can be very effective in improving many of the symptoms of PCOS, and therefore I include weight loss medication as part of my routine management of PCOS patients. However, the guidelines do not fully endorse this approach, stating rather that these medications may be considered. I think it's time for another skin tip. Polycystic ovarian syndrome is associated with many skin manifestations, with the commonest being hirsutism, then acne, and less commonly, acanthosis nigricans and androgenetic alopecia. Let's talk about hirsutism. This is a common presentation in general practice and in dermatology. What is hirsutism? Is it easy to identify clinically and how common is it? Hirsutism in women is defined as terminal hair growth in a male pattern distribution, including the beard area, back, chest and lower abdomen. It's differentiated from normal hairiness, which is more generalized. Hirsutism is probably the most common manifestation of PCOS affecting about 70% of women with PCOS. Do higher levels of androgen result in more hair growth? Generally, yes, but women can have severe hirsutism with normal testosterone levels. When and how do you investigate cases of hirsutism? The red flags for hirsutism are sudden onset and or rapid worsening, very high testosterone levels, so for example, more than 5 nanomoles per litre, or a very high DHEAS, so around 20 nanomoles per litre or more. These features would prompt me to assess for adrenal or ovarian androgen-secreting tumours. How is hirsutism in the context of PCOS treated? So we have a saying in dermatology, which is you treat the end organ. And here the end organ is the terminal hair follicle. Apart from antiandrogens, we have a variety of ways of removing hair. And these include shaving, plucking, electrolysis, and sometimes even bleaching. Now, you would have heard about laser hair removal, and these, including IPL, or intense pulse light treatment, can be effective if there is enough contrast between the hair and the skin. So you really need dark hairs in fair skin. It is less effective if the hair is fair. For example, you have cases with dark skin and dark hairs. For those, you need special lasers such as alexandrite 
or NDA lasers would be more suitable. It's important to note that the response to hair removal laser is also variable. Many patients find that after an initial period of improvement, they may need maintenance treatment. What about hair loss creams for application at home? I've seen a lot of these sold at the chemist. Yeah, so those are depilatory creams, and they can be helpful in removing hairs. But there is actually a topical treatment that slows down hair growth, and it's called topical aflonothane. The trade name is Vanica cream. Vanica is not available in Australia, but an equivalent can be compounded as a 15% cream and applied twice daily as an adjunct to the other treatments. Ever wondered who the Skin Health Institute are? At the Skin Health Institute, based in Melbourne, we aim to improve skin health for all our patients. And the research we conduct shapes clinical treatment and practice. We provide over 30,000 patient treatments each year and also deliver exceptional education programs for dermatologists, registrars and healthcare workers. Specialist training for visiting international medical graduates, workshops to upskill GPs and medical students, and public education programs aimed at improving skin health in the community. The Institute also conducts clinical trials and research projects that are published and presented internationally. We make substantial contributions to the worldwide clinical care and management of skin diseases, skin cancer and melanoma, and we are recognised globally for our medical research. We have multiple clinics for GPs to directly refer patients to. GPs can complete our online referral form available on our website at skinhealthinstitute.org.au forward slash patient referrals or email referrals to referrals at skinhealthinstitute.org.au. Another significant skin problem which faces patients with PCOS is acne. Depending on the source, acne is present in up to 50% of patients with PCOS. Rosie, do you see much acne in your patients with PCOS? Yes, nearly everyone I see has acne, and I refer a lot of them on to dermatology colleagues for consideration of isotretinoin. Although the pill and antiandrogens often improve acne immensely, once these medications are ceased, the acne usually recurs rapidly. And as we've discussed, the years women are trying to conceive or pregnant or breastfeeding, they effectively have no or very few treatments that will improve their acne. For that reason, I think that particularly for young women with severe acne, especially if they're looking at embarking on having a family one day, trying isotretinoin is worthwhile as it may mean a lot less trouble when they are older. However, it's extremely important to remember that isotretinoin is extremely teratogenic and therefore it's very important to have a very effective contraception in place. Unfortunately, a lot of acne in women with PCOS seems to recur even after isotretinoin, and I see a lot of women in their 40s for whom acne has become an issue again. When do you suspect that a patient's acne is related to underlying PCOS rather than being straightforward acne vulgaris? Annalise, that's an excellent question. Look, a lot of acne in women have a hormonal element, and hormonal acne tends to be cyclical and may worsen premenstrually. The acne is mainly on the lower face, so particularly on the mandibular area and the chin. And it tends to improve with anti-androgenic contraceptive pills or or straight anti-androgens. If a female patient has other features of PCOS clinically, for example, irregular periods, obesity, 
hirsutism, androgenetic alopecia, then the index of suspicion that the patient has PCOS rises. The other scenario is a female patient with resistance to conventional therapies or recurring very quickly after treatment with isotretinoin. For those, I tend to refer them off to my endocrinology colleagues so that we can manage this together. How do you treat acne related to PCOS? Is it any different to treating acne vulgaris? Once again, we treat the end organ. Milder cases will respond to a combination of anti-androgenic treatment, for example, an anti-androgenic contraceptive pill or a straight anti-androgen. I often add an antibiotic, such as doxycycline or erythromycin, and a topical therapy, such as a combination of adapalene and benzoyl peroxide cream or gel. But severe cases will still require isotretinoin, with the addition of an anti-androgen to prevent recurrence. That brings us to our next skin tip. Acne that seems to worsen premenstrually is worse on the lower face and tends to improve with anti-androgenic medications is more indicative of hormonal acne. In these cases, it's important to ask screening questions for other clinical features of PCOS, such as hirsutism, irregular periods, and metabolic syndrome. Shifting to another area now, why do patients develop acanthosis nigricans and how does it present clinically? Acanthosis nigricans is a curious entity. It's characterized by the development of thickened, velvety areas around skin flexures, most commonly around the neck and axillary areas. And in patients with darker skin types, it makes the skin appear darker. Now, it is usually asymptomatic, but it causes a lot of cosmetic concern. There is a strong association with insulin resistance, and it is probably due to the action of insulin-related growth factors acting directly on the skin. This is often called HAIR-AN, H-A-I-R hyphen A-N, hyperandrogenism, insulin resistance, and acanthosis nigricans. Acanthosis nigricans can be associated with PCOS, which is associated metabolic risk. Rosie, do you see much acanthosis nigricans in your PCOS patients or in your diabetic patients? Yes, if you look hard enough, it's very often present, especially in obese patients. I usually look at the back of the neck, under the arms, and under the breasts. I've learnt that badly applied vague tan can also look pretty similar to acanthosis nigricans. Rosie, I have made that mistake too. Some patients worry that their skin is dirty, and it can have that appearance. It looks a bit like when you get dust or soil stuck in your sunscreen when you've been out in the garden for a while. Alvin, how is acanthosis nigricans treated? Well, we try to treat the underlying cause. I find that acanthosis nigricans often improves quite dramatically with weight loss and improving insulin resistance. If you have a patient with um, you know, thickened areas, sometimes you can add a keratolytic, such as salicylic acid preparations, but they tend to be very irritating. If the patient's very itchy, we would recommend a short course of topical corticosteroids. But acanthosis nigricans can be quite difficult to treat. Are there any other skin comorbidities that occur with PCOS that we should be mindful of? Androgenetic alopecia is something else I see a lot of. I have a low threshold of referral to dermatologists with two things in mind. The first is excluding other causes, and the other is that women with severe cases will usually need minoxidil. 
So what I'll do is start spironolactone and by the time the patient can get in to see the dermatologist, they will have had a long enough trial for minoxidil to be added if appropriate. Um, I've also seen a large number of women with hydradenitis suppurativa to the point that now I usually ask new patients directly about symptoms of HS. For any listeners wanting to know more about androgenetic alopecia or hydradenitis suppurativa, there are episodes on both of these topics in Season 3. Now on to skin manifestations associated with diabetes. Diabetes mellitus is the most common endocrinological problem. Rosie, can you give us an idea of just how common it is and the scale of the problem in our community? About 4% of the population is diagnosed with diabetes, but it probably affects another 4%, so 8% of people in the population. And Elvin, what are some of the common cutaneous manifestations of diabetes mellitus? That's a big question. I tend to group them into diseases which are a result of diabetes and diseases which are associated with diabetes. So as a result of diabetes, they have poor wound healing, uh, poor circulation, so they increase infective risk. Um, they get tinea, neuropathic ulcers, cellulitis. As for diseases which are associated with diabetes, the most common cutaneous manifestation is diabetic dermopathy. The, this is manifest as brown patches, often on the lower limbs and shins, usually due to trauma. Diabetics with neuropathy will also get diabetic neuropathic ulcers. But the condition most commonly referred to me is necrobasis lipoidica diabeticorum, NLD. This is characterized by asymptomatic yellowish plaques, often on the lower limbs, which is granulomatous in nature. And there are some rarer diseases which I won't touch on. Are there any specific treatments for any of these manifestations? Or is the aim of treatment just to optimize diabetes management? It is important to optimize diabetes management. But general skin care is actually paramount. Tinea, particularly in nails and in diabetic feet, needs to be treated aggressively because if you have fissures in the skin, they are portals of entry for bacteria and a potential source of cellulitis. NLD is very difficult to treat, like most granulomatous diseases. I use topical steroids and sometimes intralesional steroids. You don't need to treat diabetic dermopathy. Endocrinologists will usually focus on controlling the HbA1c as much as possible and weight loss where possible. Diabetes is a team sport and for many of these conditions, you will need the input of diabetes educators, podiatrists and vascular and plastic surgeons. Okay, I think it's time for yet another skin tip. There are many skin manifestations of diabetes with the commonest being diabetic dermopathy which presents as brown patches, often on the lower limbs. This condition does not require treatment, while other skin manifestations such as tinea and diabetic ulcers should be managed aggressively to prevent secondary infections. Finally, we're going to finish up with thyroid disease. What kind of thyroid disease do you see as an endocrinologist, Rosie? Hypothyroidism is extremely common in women, especially as we age. Other really common conditions include mild hypothyroidism due to multinodular goiter, which is very common in the elderly. Graves' disease is a less common problem in the community, but part of the garden variety of endocrine practice. And Alvin, what are the skin and hair changes associated with thyroid disease? Uh, these changes are actually very nonspecific, but for hypothyroidism, patients often uh, have pale and dry skin, 
and the hair is dry and brittle with some hair loss. And classically, there's loss of the outer third of eyebrows, although personally, I've never seen this. Then in hyperthyroidism, patients get warm, moist skin with increased sweating and facial flushing. They can also have a type of telogen effluvium, and patients can have palmar plantar hyperhidrosis. Would you recommend any treatment options for any of these manifestations? Not really. I think if you treat the thyroid disease and the patient's euthyroid, everything tends to improve. We should also touch on Graves' disease. Rosie, what is Graves' disease? Graves' disease is an autoimmune disease that causes hypothyroidism. Medical treatment is usually highly effective, but it does frequently recur. The TSH receptor antibody, which is responsible for Graves' disease, also causes Graves' ophthalmopathy. Alvin, can you talk us through some of the cutaneous manifestations of Graves' disease? Yes. So the manifestations can be nonspecific or specific. So the nonspecific manifestations are the manifestations of hyperthyroidism, which we've already talked about. But in terms of specific manifestations, Graves' disease causes, in some areas of skin, mucin to be deposited. So you would have heard of pretibial myxedema, and this is uh, characterized by plaques, usually on the lower limbs, where if you biopsy it, you actually get a lot of mucin in the skin. And this is associated with antithyroglobulin antibodies, and it can be very difficult to treat. Autoimmune thyroid disease can also be associated with cutaneous diseases like vitiligo, where you lose your pigment. How is Graves' disease treated? Does treatment of the thyroid disease make an impact on the other changes in the eyes and the skin? Graves' disease is usually treated with a 12 to 18-month course of antithyroid drugs such as carbimazole. Thyroid function is monitored after treatment cessation. If Graves recurs, then definitive therapy with radioactive iodine or surgery may be considered. Treatment, however, is very regional. For example, in the US, it is common to use radioactive iodine as a first-line treatment for Graves'. Skin problems are not usually a major concern for most patients with Graves, or at least not for their endocrinologists. Graves' eye disease is really considered its own entity. Treatment involves steroids and the close involvement of an experienced ophthalmologist. You mentioned that thyroid disease is associated with other autoimmune skin diseases. Can you tell us more about these? Yes. Many autoimmune diseases occur in clusters, so there are associations between them. The classic ones we see include vitiligo and thyroid disease. A recent meta-analysis demonstrated that there is an increased prevalence of subclinical hypothyroidism in patients with vitiligo. I think it's time for another skin tip. Cutaneous manifestations of hypothyroidism can include pale, dry skin, dry, brittle hair with hair loss, and loss of the outer third of eyebrows. Skin manifestations of hyperthyroidism include facial flushing, non-scarring alopecia, and palmar plantar hyperhidrosis. That concludes our episode on endocrine disorders and their common skin manifestations. Thank you, Rosie and Alvin, for your time and sharing your expertise with us. Thanks for having me. That was wonderful. Thanks for having me. We would also like to thank the education team at the Skin Health Institute. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. 
For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast. 